This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the channel. In today's podcast, I'm delighted to greet Dr. John Connolly, Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. We will be discussing his monumental new book, From Peoples into Nations, History of Eastern Europe, published by Princeton University Press earlier this year. Immediately taking pride of place on graduate reading lists in modern Eastern European history, From Peoples into Nations is an encyclopedic but lively narrative that captivates both those familiar with old stories about the region and novices who are seeking introduction to this vast laboratory of European modernity. Passionate, erudite, and insightful, the book pursues answers to the central question of Eastern European history. Why does nationalism persist as the organizing principle of political life in a region where it has produced such tragedies? Dr. Connolly, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your book. Uh, You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Our listeners will be familiar with your fascinating work on Eastern European universities under high Stalinism. How has your previous research led you to write a synthesis of the region's modern history? Uh, well, I, I would say actually this this book is related more to my teaching than my research. Uh, I've been teaching East European history for you know almost thirty years now, and um, this is in some ways a summation of what I've been trying to tell the students over uh, that, that period. So uh, obviously it's, cr- it's connected to the research in the sense that I was living in Eastern Europe for um, actually years, a number of years in the 1980s. And I think I absorbed a, a lot of the um, questions that interested people in the region. So th- there's an earlier way in which the, this, this book is connected to that, to that earlier research. Uh, the earlier research, by the way, was uh, almost entirely upon the, about the Stalinist years, whereas this book as you know, it goes back to the 18th century. Uh, so the, the, the roots uh, of, the, of this book are both in research and teaching, but I think more directly in teaching, actually. There is no geography without politics. How have you resolved the conundrum of spatially delineating Eastern Europe? Where is this region in your <laughs> narrative? Uh, what are its boundaries 
and relations with some neighboring worlds, Middle Europa or the Islamic Near East, for instance? Yeah, so the the way that I do this, uh, and this is the way I've chosen to do this in teaching as well for many years, is I, I talk about the region as a region of experience. Um, you know, I, There's no point in trying to delineate exact lines in the map where Eastern Europe begins and ends. It's the, the same with some of the individual uh, nations and even nation states like Poland, for example, wasn't on the map in the 19th century, yet, yet there was a Poland in a sense. So the, the common experience is one of uh, a sense and a politics, uh, you know, a discourse, if you will, of belonging to small peoples uh, threatened um, by their large neighbors uh, to the extent of, of, of the danger of becoming extinct. I mean, that, that, that was a, an argument that was used from the 18th century onward, and that's actually why my book begins in the 18th century. Uh, the other, uh, the, the neighboring areas in, in this discourse or in this understanding are, of course, areas that are thought of as being historically imperial, uh, German, meaning German Prussia, German Austria, uh, the Russian Empire, as well as the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so the, in, in, in all of the, the, the local nar- na- national narratives, there, there's a there's a, there's a sense of uh, the German or the Turk or the Russian representing something from the outside that, that could stifle and uh, destroy what is on the inside, uh, namely the, the national existence. So that's that, that's so I you know this the short answer is simply that it's a it's a region of um, small peoples between uh, larger uh, imperial entities uh, that has a common a common sense of the fragility of history and uh, understands that nations in history come and go and the national discourses are built in a way that supports the idea that everything needs to be devoted to the effort to maintain the nation. Burgeoning scholarship under the rubric of national indifference has maintained rather forcefully that national identities were a relatively late product of modern state building in supranational dynastic polities, Habsburg, the Hohenzollern, Ottoman, and Romanov. Uh, how does from peoples into nations engage with this line of argumentation? Well, my, I uh, first have to say that I extremely uh, value this this approach. And, and when I was a student in Poland, I actually spent a lot of time in Upper Silesia, which is a, a place that is renowned for uh, a population that somewhere falls between two major nationalities, the, you know, their national discourses, the German and the Polish. Uh, but my, and, and, and I understand that, the, and in fact, I've, I've actually spent time with families where there are members who felt they could go in either direction or in no direction, that they would call themselves simply locals. And this is as late as the 1980s. But my view is that this is relatively exceptional for the region, that this is a borderland phenomenon, this, this phenomenon of so-called national indifference, where there, there are, you know, significant numbers of people who feel they fall between nationalities and don't opt for any nationality and are happy being bi or trilingual. Um, the, in, in my view, the, um, the main story, and this is found throughout the region, is in fact the, the advance of the nationalist narrative from Poland down to Serbia, including you know, Bulgaria, the Czech lands, Hungary. In a ver- very similar way, there are efforts from the late 18th century by politically involved, culturally involved individuals to resurrect um, the basic coordinates, uh, the basic substance of nationhood, above all language, as, as is well known, but also a sense of history and then political organization. Uh, and these these histories don't begin suddenly in the 18th century, but go, go back earlier. Um, one of the 
points that I make in my book very strongly is that that in the uh, the case of uh, much of the South Slav area, there was a very old tradition of oral folk poetry uh, in which uh, populations, um, mostly illiterate, told themselves stories about the past and who they were, uh, which formed a, you know, a, a solid uh, resource for later nationalist movements. So that I would dispute the idea that nationalism is purely something that emerges in the 18th century. It, you know, it solidifies and adopts a new political uh, uh, form in, from the late 18th century onward. Uh, but it's 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 not completely new, uh, and there was also a very large uh, number of there were very 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 large numbers of uh, especially people of gentry background in Hungary, and Poland, early modern Hungary and Poland, who had a very distinct sense of local identity. Um, that is 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 a precursor, an important precursor to modern nationalism. Um, I could t- talk at much greater length about this, but uh, so so my 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 view is that. The modern uh, literature on nationalism has stressed the way in which nationalism is, is contingent. Even an individual decision doesn't need to happen. Um, whereas what I stress is, is the pattern of the, of the very same kind, very similar kinds of, of the development of uh, nationalist narratives throughout the region, from you know from the Baltic states uh, down to uh, through 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 the Balkans and through Central Europe over. Um, the period extending from the late 18th century to the late 19th century. To unpack this further, you uh, define Eastern Europe as an anti-imperial space of small nations and write that anti-imperial struggle kept ethnic cultures alive, but it also promoted ideologies of exclusion that can become racist. How has the historical experience of living in between empires and absorbing these existential political and cultural, linguistic even, threats molded Eastern European modernities. Perhaps elaborate on, on a few examples. Uh, well, the, it's, it's not a... <laughs> the interesting thing is, and I think that the newer literature is very good about this, it's not a hero, heroic story, uh, right? It's, it's portrayed that way within the regions being a heroic story. But in, in essence, uh, the, the Czech national narrative, for example, is, is formulated as an anti-German narrative so that if, if the Czechs are one thing the Germans are, are, are another right and uh, the, the most basic distinction of course is that the Czechs are uh, so-called small people whereas the Germans are a large supposedly aggressive imperial people and you know the entire the entire Czech modern political understanding uh, from the late from the mid 19th century actually grows upon these these presuppositions um, there's a way in which of course the you know the Polish uh, national narrative is set against um, um, perceptions, representations of, of of what German and Russian imperialism have meant. Um, this 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 makes for very very high stakes within the the, the, the Polish political discourse about what counts as sufficiently properly uh, Polish politics, right? And this extends to the to, to this day. Uh, it's it's extraordinary, you know, at this late date that um, anti-Germanism could make such a strong appearance. Uh, with, so many years after World War II, within the Polish political discourse, but it comes back again and again, and it has these these deeper roots in the sense of being caught between empires. Um, there is, of course, also there there, there are all kinds of um, parallel stereotypes within the Serb nationalist discourse about uh, historical Turkish Ottoman rule uh, that um, also make for very high stakes for being a properly national uh, politician within the Serb. Uh, political uh, realm, and it's you know it's extraordinary in the Bosnian. Again, in recent years in the Bosnian uh, 
context to see ways in which very old uh, understandings of, of, of what is foreign and what is properly uh, native reemerge and are used to, to, to try to establish space between various sort of political parties, right? And so throughout the region, you see this a way in which the, the this anti-imperialist discourse makes for um, very high stakes to be properly counted as a national politician. And this historically extends even to the, into the socialist movement. I mean, one of the things that I've, I found striking uh, in researching the, the late 19th centuries and the way, the way in which the uh, Czech Social Democratic Party, which was uh, Marxist, as, as you know, found that it had to completely accept this governing narrative of so-called bohemian states' rights uh, and deny any local administrative entities that might favor the German language, which would have been, a, at the time, uh, the, the idea of there being administrative entities in, Bos in, in, in Bohemia that would have um, permitted the, the flourishing of German language would have been a sensible kind of uh, uh, compromise to the heated um, political struggle of, of, of the 1890s. But this was, this was something that if a, even a German, I'm sorry, a Czech Marxist were to accept that Czech, Czech Marxist soon found himself, and these were usually uh, men uh, outflanked by other socialists who called themselves more nationalists. That was the founding of the Czech National Socialist Party in the late 1890s. So there's a way in which there's, 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 a, there's a presence of a, a sense of outside threat that can always be brought into, into politics, it seems, almost in every generation. That's the, you know, the, the major feature of politics that it distinguishes this region, by the way, from Western Europe where the, you know, the, the, this sort of sense of threat is not as strong. One exception I'll mention, I, I had a sabbatical in uh, Northern Ireland uh, re in, recently, and I, I learned that actually in, within Northern Ireland, you find very, very similar kinds of pr pressures to create a uh, uh, sense of political correctness, if you will, or national political correctness among uh, politicians of um, the so-called loyalist and the nationalist side. So it's not, not a uniquely East European thing, but this post-imperial consciousness um, across this band of countries does create a very peculiar kind of environment and long-lasting um, you know, concerns within political discourse. Focus strongly on the political role of language, uh, especially early on in the Czech case. Perhaps care to elaborate on how these early Czech nationalists in, in, in the early 19th saw their own culture as being threatened by the, the, the much vaster, larger German cultural complex. Yeah, so the Czech case, this is not my original finding, uh, but it's something that's been studied by a number of people throughout the, the decades. Hugh Agnew, for example, in the United States, Miroslav Roch, uh, famously in uh, the Czech case. Um, this is a this is a considered a paradigmatic case of linguistic nationalism because it, it represents a concern among a very very small group of, uh, of scholars and intellectuals. In this case, in the late eighteenth century, that the vernacular had had declined in a way that made it um, vulnerable to um, being superseded by uh, what was considered the imperial language, so German in that case. Uh, and so, the, as, as is well known, uh, small, these relatively small groups of, of scholars over several generations did what they could to bring the language back to life, to resuscitate it. Uh, so it's, it's a well-known story how um, um, people like Jungmann and Dobrovsky uh, actually uh, created new words. Uh, they took words from other Slavic languages to take the place of, of Czech language words that had 
had been lost, they, 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 they tried to purge the language of, of Germ- Germanisms, um, all in an effort to, to, to make sure that this, this, this basic substance of what they viewed as Czech nation would be, be preserved. Um, but it's interesting to, to note that they were, although nationalism, you know, um, itself, um, exaggerates, lives by exaggerating outside threats. There was, in fact, there was, there, there was a, a, a very li- live threat in this period, the late uh, 18th century, coming from Habsburg authorities to replace Czech with German simply because the authorities f- thought that, and with good reason, that German w- would be more useful for state-building purposes, right? So Joseph II, the Habsburg leader of the uh, 1780s, he was concerned about making a strong state and believed German would be the best way to do that. Uh, and thereby he he made people, children in the Bohemian lands literate in Czech so that they could then learn German and become you know, pr- properly useful subjects. Uh, so he w- did not intend, he did not, did not, not see himself as a German nationalist, but the, the effect of these, these measures to try to replace uh, as much as possible, Czech with German also in the Hungarian lands was to, was to arouse um, a sense among Czech uh, and Hungarian elites that their languages, these languages, might disappear. So I, I find this this sensitivity was rooted in a, in, in a real sense of threat. But it's interesting that it, of course it, it was re, it was very focused. There, there weren't you know there were there were most dozens of, of of scholars who were concerned about this in the Bohemian lands yet. Uh, this 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 sensitivity spread, and that's what I find remarkable and difficult actually to explain is that this this concern with the disappearance of language actually spread and motivated uh, you know hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands of people in the in in, in the Czech lands to to become politically active and, and do things to create institutions to maintain to 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 resuscitate and maintain that language. Uh, you know, we could get into why that was the case, but that—that's the, the basic story is, is 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 there and in other places in Poland as well, and as you uh, you know, as, as you probably know, in the South Slav lands of you know, in, in this very period, early early nineteenth century, of scholars coming together, and and trying to do what they can to to resuscitate vernaculars that had fallen into disuse and were no no longer written or used in scholarly language, and then make them, uh, you know, a basic tool for for creating later nation, nation states, national state entities. Excellent segue into my next question. Um, it has been quite popular uh, among scholars to discuss the so-called sociological depth of nationalism. Uh, when does it become a mass popular phenomenon in, in your narrative? Uh, people like Rogers Brubaker or, or Peter Judson would still insist that for a very long time it remains a, let's say, an elite top-down project. Uh, where do you see it as becoming a, a mass phenomenon, something that has wider social uh, reverberations? And how? And how does that process work? Right. Well, I I uh, actually rely upon the work of a Polish scholar named Henryk Wereszycki, relatively little known in the West, but very well known in Poland. Um, so he, he locates uh, the, the spread, sort of the, the mass spread of this the, a sense of Czechness and the need to create Czech institutions to the 1830s and 1840s. And it has to do in part with uh, processes also of modernization, the, the spread of schooling and mo- modern forms of communication, what Miroslav Kroch calls social communication. The fact that uh, Czechs from further and further away from each other were coming into frequent contact, 
coming into in, into towns to, to do business with each other. Uh, so that it became in the 1830s and 1840s practical, reasonable, uh, you know, efficient, effective. This is the theory of Karl Deutsch for Czech speakers, in fact, to rely upon uh, their language and their their common sense of Czechness to do very practical things, make money, for example, right, to build businesses, uh, to to expand uh, markets, uh, to do advertising, right, to travel beyond the boundaries of the city of, uh, of Prague into the outlying areas and, and find new customers. Uh, because of, of, of the widespread presence of the vernacular that was that now, now, now becoming a, a written and spoken language, it, it, made, it, it made practical sense. Uh, in fact, people had uh, a concrete benefit by going out and using the Czech language among Czech speakers. So, uh, and you know, what's interesting in the 1840s is that some of the, the great later, uh, the famous Czech nationalists of, of, of later period uh, were demanding from Austrian authorities things like trade schools, right? The, the, the permission to use, to make use of the Czech language simply to make uh, young, young Czech people able to do business and to, and, and to pursue crafts uh, in, the, in the vernacular, clearly because that, w- that was considered to be useful. Uh, and, and, and beneficial um, as, as social communication uh, spread. Um, so I, I, I would say by, you know, this is, this is a, again, not my own, my own finding, but by the 18, 1850s, certainly 1860s, it's, it's a ma- mass phenomenon. This is re- a relatively brief period, by the way, right? From the, let us say, the, the early, uh, the, the pioneers, Palatsky was still considered himself to be uh, a relative outsider in the 1830s. By the 1850s, 60s, uh, the, the environment of Prague or Brno, other cities has changed. And there's a, there's a very strong Czech presence by that, by that point. People are aware of themselves as being Czech and they find it useful to be Czech. But so there's this practical element, right, of social communication. But there's also a, you know, a less tangible, um, I would say, more idealistic element that goes hand in hand. It's inseparable from that. Uh, the creation, the gradual formation of an ideology of Czechness, the idea that it's, it's valuable and important to, to think of oneself as part of a, of a people that goes back um, many centuries, in fact, into time immemorial, has suffered oppression, looks upon uh, you know, a, a series of, of, of proud rulers uh, in the Middle Ages and earlier, right? Uh, in fact, lays claim to the territory of the Czech lands for historical reasons. Uh, there's a, there's a, you know about the, the document, documents forged in the early 19th century, all of this sense of, of it being a very important thing for a person to be Czech. Also at a time of increasing secularization and the, the, the decline of organized religion, this goes hand in hand with the more practical uh, way in which being Czech is, is, is a way of uh, simply advancing in the modern world. At the same time, one advances with a certain kind of ideological passion and fervor and, and insistence that uh, one has to pass this, this sense of Czech identity onto one's children. That it's a mission that one one has in life, like a religion, right? So, so I, I think what where I you know really benefit from ve- the use of Vereshitsky, the Polish author, and others, is is the way in which one sees in the nineteenth century, thanks to processes of modernization, uh, you know, the, the expansion of markets, the growth of mo- modern schools and modern means of communication, railroads and the like, but also this this very intense uh, concern by national patriots like Palatsky with creating this myth- mythology. That uh, you know, nationalism has has the, these two elements uh, that are that are inseparable, uh, and it, by the 1880s, uh, you know, the idea of being a good Czech or a good Pole is is uh, is something that um, no one can ignore. 
right? And, and the way ultimately that nationalism succeeds is by shaming those who presume to stay on the outside. And you see this really throughout the region, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, nationalism, um, I've been thinking more about this recently, uh, just in light of other readings I've been reading in the French Revolution recently. Nationalism is above all a language, right? It, 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 while it, it also fosters language, right? The development of vernacular, it is its own language with, with its own set of uh, understandings uh, of what is valuable in life that it you know that, that that suddenly one finds oneself in the middle of right say a check were to fall asleep in the 1840s and wake up in the 1870s suddenly that check 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 speaker would have found him or herself surrounded by expectations that weren't as strong were not as present in the 1840s but by the 1870s you couldn't ignore you know um and uh, you know we could go we could go on a greater length about this uh so so all so so you know to 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 sum up um these 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 sort of practical um, um, considerations of, of 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 being a successful person in a modern society they they combine perfectly and, and inseparably from this 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 more um, you know uh, I, I, idealistic um, uh, almost quasi religious form of nationalism. It happens at the very same time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. As the 19th century comes to a close, could a good check uh, still be loyal to the House Habsburg? Uh, could a good Pole or a good Serb uh, be a Russian or Ottoman subject? In other words, when do uh, nationalist projects become directly opposed to the older imperial uh, frameworks of rule in the region? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. Uh, so, so pe- um, you know, Peter Peter Judson and others have said very, very accurately that no one among uh, Czech nationalists was considering their or demanding that there be necessarily a uh, uh, a Czech national entity. Let us say in the uh, even in the years right up before World War World War One, um, the expectation on the part of even the the, the, the right the, the, the Czech nationalists and part of uh, Masaryk and people to his right was that they would for for into the foreseeable future uh, would remain Habsburg subjects uh, and would, would strive to have some kind of Czech representation as loyal Habsburg subjects. Uh, I think it's it's certainly the case also, you know, on the Polish right, Domowski uh, considered him, did all that he could, you know, within reason to collaborate with uh, Tsarist authorities. And Serbia, you know, I, I, I think that the sense is stronger that one has to separate oneself from from Ottoman authorities, uh, certainly in, in Serbia proper as it grows in the 19th century, collaborate, but then separate oneself as quickly as possible. Um, but in the Habsburg lands, yes, indeed, I, I think um, into World War One there was a sense that one uh, not only could be, but had to be a, lo- a loyal Habsburg subject. But it's interesting that as soon as, as the war breaks out, I mean, within months of the war breaking out, Masaryk and South Slav politicians, uh, uh, you know, the former, the, the, the later Yugoslav committee, are already imagining 
uh, well, they, they escape, right? They, they, they leave the, the Habsburg lands and they go to the West and they begin, in a sense, uh, openly pr practicing um, uh, subversion. Um, they, they pursue the creation of uh, Czech and uh, Czechoslovak and Yugoslav states. So World War I is, is the point at which this kind of loyalty then breaks down. I would say, um, in the case of Masaryk, it has to do also with the the uh, the argument and and you know the fact that the Habsburg authorities they uh, did a lot to actively persecute um, Slavic politicians, uh, leading leading to imprisonments and even mass executions for treason. So World War World War One is really where where the, all of this breaks down, I would say, uh, and 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 where uh, uh, so so that by 1918 there's 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 you know, widespread, universal, I would say, uh, understanding in the Czech lands that the, the place to go now is away from the Habsburgs <clears throat> and into, into an independent uh, Czechoslovak Republican uh, nationhood. An interesting thread to follow. Um, what is the relationship between war and nationalism in the first half of the 20th century in Eastern Europe? Is it fair to say that war strengthens, crystallizes national movements and sentiments, or could we also argue that it causes some sort of a nationalist fatigue, especially after the <clears throat> Second World War? It does both. Um, that's it. You formulate the question perfectly. So I think <clears throat> during the war itself, um, take, take the Polish lands or, the, or, or uh, South Slav area, indeed, these re resistance movements emerge that are popular uh, and and um, extremely active um, and at, at the risk of people's lives, uh, Poles are conspiring from you know from 1940 onward. Um, there's a this is by the way connected to an earlier uh, quote unquote romantic heritage, right? And that's why I think it's it's important that a book on Eastern Europe also look very carefully at the 19th century. That's one of the you know, one of the things I discovered while, while writing my book was that I, I began thinking I'd be writing about the 1940s, but I couldn't really write about the 1940s without looking at the 1840s at the same time. So uh, the um, the experience of the, the Warsaw Underground during World War II is indeed of, uh, one of in increasing stakes of national loyalty. And you, you see this in the memoirs of Czesław Miłosz, right, where uh, he's, he's accused of being a, a poor Pole because he doesn't actually, or a bad Pole, because he, does, he just doesn't get involved in the the actual armed fighting, uh, say in 1944. Um, so during during the war, there's a you know, extraordinary pressure upon, especially young people, to become involved in in in, in, in Poland at least uh, in this national resistance. But uh, again, you know, staying within Poland, Poland then uh, experiences several years of, of, of vicious, vicious civil war after the war, um, various kinds of formations fighting each other. And I think so. The word you use, exhaustion, by 1947-48, I, th I think I think that society is is exhausted, uh, and is 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 ready for something new. Uh, that is that is I think what explains the openness on the part of a lot of intellectuals, also many young people to to to, to openly embrace uh, the Marxist regime, uh, at least to go along with it and try to make their peace with it. Um, you see this on, on the part of a lot of you know, survivors of the of the war wartime underground. Uh, take, for example, the, the Polish writer Jacek Czernadl, who later became pretty well known as, as, as a staunch figure on the right. Um, he, he, he also made his peace and, and, and produced uh, uh, Soviet-style literature during uh, the early 1950s. 
Um, but the, the cases differ. I, I don't want to go into all of them. Don't know them as well as the Polish case. Um, you don't you don't see quite quite the, quite the same um, fervor, for example, on the Czech lands. I think the the national the national movement there uh, found that the state, the nation state itself, had failed them by acceding to the German demands at Munich in 1938. So there's a large degree of resignation and you know, relatively small national movement in the Czech lands. But for that reason, if Poland is exhausted by nationalism after World War II, the, in some ways, uh, Czech nationalism is revived and turns upon uh, Germans 1945-46, uh, but then upon Czechs themselves, the Czech national spectrum becomes inc you know, incredibly uh, uh, viciously divided left and right, but also uh, along the lines of the better and the worst national, um, supposedly national politics. Uh, but anyway, so, so yeah, so war, wars uh, have, have precisely the effect that you describe. I think they, they awaken a sense of, um, of uh, nation, national nationalist fervor, but then there, there's, there's, a, there's a down cycle. And in the Czech lands, that would be the, I would say the, you know, the time after the Slansky trial, or the mid 1950s, uh, that society is exhausted by uh, by several several years of this uh, kind of witch hunt for traitors, national traitors. Right. Uh, that's how Slansky and and the others were were, were identified as being national traitors. Uh, when Stalin dies, all of that suddenly uh, calms down, and the party leadership itself uh, ceases to behave in the, in, in that way. Um, Stalinism itself was 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 a time when when there was fear of imminent war, uh, so it fits into to what you describe as 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 a, a war time, uh, in a sense. Brings me to my my next question. I really admire your thesis that that nationalism served as a vessel through which other ideologies in the region were reworked or negotiated, including liberalism, fascism, corporatism, Marxism international socialism, could you elucidate that thesis by offering a, a few examples of this uneasy relationship and this reworking of other ideological projects through nationalism? Well, I don't know about reworking. Adaptation would be maybe the better the better sense. Uh, look, national socialism itself is, is primarily nationalist. It emerges from uh, the region very strongly in Austria, but also Hungary from the 1890s to the 1930s. It's a response. Uh, I mean, I, I talk about it. This is also known as fascism, by the way, national socialism. It's a response against liberalism, usually by uh, by, by intellectuals of the center left who move rightward by claiming that the, the liberalism itself has, has failed the common people, the folk, the narut, right? Uh, so in, in, in a sense, this is, is, is a directly, this is a, you know, a direct, direct continuation in a way, also distortion of early liberal, liberal nationalism. All nationalism in the 1840s is, is liberal, right? I mean, there, there is, of course, a, you know, there's, there's a socialism emerging, but basically the national movements of the 1840s are, are liberal. Uh, the challenges come by the, the late 1870s throughout, throughout the 1880s. The, 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 the drama, the greatest drama in this, in, in this sense, is, is therefore on, on, on the emerging left among socialists. Uh, and, you know, relying on, on, on the work of, of, of others who have preceded me, like Jakub Benesch, for example, uh, has written very eloquently about this in the, in the Czech case. Um, what, what one sees is the way in which social democrats, followers of, of Marx and Engels themselves, find, 
that that from Marxism itself, the, 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 they're lacking a language in which to address uh, this, this this new kind of discourse that has suddenly emerged as, as so forceful uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are, are on the German side, as is well known, there's this ad- adaptation of Austro-Marxism, the idea that there could be a separate kind of national, uh, you know, national representation for, for individuals' national interests within uh, within within Austria-Hungary. But uh, following Hans Mommsen in, in, in the book, I, I identify this as really a culturally German project uh, with the assumption that um, as socialism progresses, uh, it will also lead to the spread and the victory of uh, of uh, German. Sorry, there's a, there's a lot of activity in our street for it right now for some reason. It's trash day. Uh, anyway, that that uh, Otto Bauer, uh, Karl Kautsky, and others they, they they believe that as socialism spread, so would so would German culture. Uh, so that meant that um, Polish and, and, and Czech socialists, uh, if they were to maintain themselves within their uh, their their political environments during the spread of mass mass politics, had themselves to become in some sense. Uh, nationalist, um, but it's a but it, you know comparatively speaking, compared with the right, this is a. And here, here, here's the you know, answer about adaptation. It's 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 a relatively tolerant kind of of nationalism, um, which, for example, in the Czech case, provides for uh, uh, equal rights for German culture under um, um, the new Czechoslovak state. Um, it, um, uh, but at the same time, it's 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 decidedly ethnic. And a turning point for me was in the 1890s, as I mentioned, when uh, Czech social democrats were faced with the, the question about whether they would uh, support a watering down of this ideology of Czech states' rights or Bohemian states' rights. And when they acceded to even thinking about that, right, to saying that the Czech lands, Bohemia, might not be fully Czech, they immediately began fa- facing challenges from among other socialists, right? So what, what I say, you know, a broader answer to your question, what I say in the book is is that na- nationalism, this nationalist, these na- these understandings of the need to d- defend uh, threatened people, um, this 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 kind of discourse, this kind of politics, um, uh, insinuates itself upon all other kinds of politics, uh, beginning with liberalism. Liberalism, you know, nationalism, was originally a liberal project. Uh, beginning in the 1840s, but then extending uh, leftward. And late in the book, when I talk about the communist states, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, not so much Hungary for specific reasons, but also Yugoslavia, all of these cases, the communist leaderships, Romania, of course, is a well-known case, Bulgaria, all of all, all of the communist leaderships find themselves seeking legitimacy through nationalists, certain kinds of national nationalist poses. So so I guess, you know, um, the, 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 the book... Um, uh, the theme of the book is, is, is indeed, therefore, the way in which uh, nationalism um, isn't so much its own politics, but that it colors politics. Right? It's, not, it's not a separate part of the political spectrum, but that it, it, it tends to shape the, 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 the language of the, of the political spectrum as a whole. It's inescapable. Uh, to, to put a you know, sharp point on it, there is no nationally indifferent politics. Once mass politics emerges, it very quickly becomes uh, framed within... Uh, within the categories, the understandings, the, the demands, the shame—you know—the the shaming of, of 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 modern nationalism. So it's incredibly powerful, uh, and 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 I think that uh, that's something that one sees 
most clearly if one does two things that the book does, which is look looks at the entire region, right? So it's not just one part of it, but Poland down to the South Slav area, and looks at it over about 250 years of time when you, you see this this theme uh, repeated again and again and, and, and growing over time and forming into this extremely strong um, kind of politics that extends into our day and continues to surprise people. I had to step my next question in a, in a better way myself. And I know that it's well nigh impossible to offer a comprehensive response format. Nonetheless, I hope you would be willing to hazard a brief response. Why have all major modern political projects been so vigorously tried out and decisively tested in Eastern Europe? What is it about the region that renders it such a dynamic laboratory of modernity's grand narratives? Well, I can. <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I, I think it has to do with its situation, uh, the situation of the countries of the region between these these, these two uh, em empires, right? So, um, Nazism, this specific form of fascism, is something that grows out of the German national product project, right? And uh, the fact that ger the German question, um, in the eyes of ethnic German nationalists, was not settled in 1871, but that uh, a third or more of ethnic Germans, including uh, the family of Adolf Hitler, were left outside that German nation state. Uh, and so when after Versailles and after World War I, radical German nationalism becomes a major force, and then a you know, the largest force within German politics in the early 1930s. Uh, it's its natural place to look is, of course, uh, East Central Europe, where there are uh, not only um, lots of ethnic Germans, but also there's, there's there are territories that, according to Nazi ideology, need to be settled by uh, and, and, and held by ethnic Germans, reducing the local Slavic populations in Poland or the Czech lands or Ukraine to, 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 to slave status, right? Um, so the the, the, the way the, the, the reason that and this this diverges I think a bit from what people usually think about Eastern Europe, the reason that fascism um, finds Eastern Europe as, as, a, as a kind of a you know a laboratory or a, a place where it, it works itself out uh, does not have to do so much with um, politics internal to the region. Um, aside from Hungary and Romania, there was no strong fascist movement within Eastern East Central Europe proper, right? The area that I talk about in the book. This is a, this is very much the, 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 the last stage of fulfillment of uh, a, a radically understood ethnic German pro, pro, uh, project of making finally a German nation state that will include all Germans, you know, and, and, and the force that comes to power with that, that argument, uh, the, not, the, the, not, the National Socialist German Work, Workers' Party um, doesn't, is, isn't, of course, uh, satisfied by by uh, making um, ethnically German areas of East Central Europe parts of the German nation state, it wants to go beyond that, right? So, so that's that 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 uh, it, and of course it's the relative uh, weakness of the region that makes it possible for 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 Germany to succeed, and also the the uh, the, you know, the the fact that in, in the West there is there is no resolve to to actually stand up to Germany, as is well known in the 1930s. Um, and so what about the other ideology, which is, is, is communism? Um, it's the failure of this, this Nazi project that then, then opens a vacuum permitting uh, Marxism-Leninism. Uh, so Marxism and its, its Soviet, Soviet guys to, ent to enter the region. Um, I, 
I do, I do think that uh, historically speaking, again, there there like fascism, there are not there are not really deep roots in the East European region for radical uh, socialism, right? I mean, there there, there are in, there are as is the case in Germany. There's of course a very strong uh, history of moderate. Uh, social democracy of moderate revisionist Marxism. That indeed was the case in the Czech lands, Hungary, Poland, Austria, right? Uh, South Slav areas, very, very important, very strong, moderate social democracy. Uh, so there's, 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 there's no, um, you know, n- nobody looking at the region in 1939 would have said this region is primed for, for uh, communist style regimes. But so the, but so the reason is, the reason the region is, the region is open to that, that kind of, Politics after World War II is has to do with the, the collapse of uh, the Nazi project and the, the desire of the other empire, the other right, the, the 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 more modern version of the of the Russian Empire to seek security uh, by by creating its it, its own kind of uh, buffer uh, after World War II and the most secure buffer uh, for Stalin by the late 1940s. There's excellent work by Norman Neymark about this recently. By the way, the most secure buffer um, was um, um, but by gra- gradually imposing uniformity upon the East European region and what we came to know as the Soviet bloc, um, and once this happened, it turned out that this region that you know, that really was was not uh, a region that you would ever thought would have been a staging ground for communist politics. Indeed, became uh, almost indistinguishable from uh, parts of the Soviet Union. Um, the Berkeley political scientist Kenneth Jowett. Uh, called the East European states replica regimes, Leninist replica regimes. So by 1954, the architecture, the music, the literature, the, indus- the, the, the industry, the, you know, the science, all of it uh, was done according to, to Soviet models. So it's, it's extraordinary, actually. I think we don't really understand very well why it was the case that uh, the Soviet model then indeed was, was transferred um, to Eastern Europe um, um, after 1956, um, as we know, or in 1956, there were uh, reactions against the Soviet model, especially in Poland and Hungary. So that, that, that there, there's a kind of a, I guess sociologists would say, sociologists would say, or social historians would say, a kind of negotiation after that point. That is that uh, the societies of Eastern Europe go uh, d- differing ways. Uh, Hungarian uh, communists go a relatively pragmatic form of, 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 of socialism um, whereas you know East East Germany or East Germany's or uh, Czechoslovak uh, communists um, are, are known by the 1980s as being hardliners uh, nevertheless there, there is a startling degree of diversity within within the region um, so those are the two projects that come to mind when you when you say why is the, the region been a sort of a staging ground for modern ideologies liberalism I'm not so sure about right <laughs> liberalism still has to has to prove itself uh, with, within the region. There was a, there were there have been three stages of, of experimentation beginning in the 1870s, right, with the creation of the new, the new ethnically based nation states, um, and better known 1918-1919. That that, that those liberal experiments um, failed relatively quickly. Even Czechoslovakia, there's a question about whether it can be regarded as a liberal regime. And then after 1989, right, until if we'd been speaking 10 years ago, we'd be speaking about the victory of liberalism in Eastern Europe. It's not so clear now. So, uh, and you know, why, why, uh, why is it that Hungary and Poland, especially Hungary, seem to be uh, experimenting with new kinds of politics? I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but it gets back, I think, to the, to the way in which Orban and, and Kaczynski are able to manipulate 
nationalist language for their own purposes uh, that, that that are illiberal, right? That are directly illiberal, and it's it, it's shocking to to watch, uh, especially for those of us who were active in the 1980s uh, and sympathetic to the dissident movements to see what's been happening in recent years. This is exactly where I would like to uh, wrap up the conversation and where you end the book. Um, what are the prospects for a, let's say, post-national Eastern Europe during an, an era in which liberalism seems to be on, on the rise? Yeah, I, I think the prospects are poor. <laughs> I, I don't see an end to the national era at the moment um, because it seems to me that it's it's a language that is continually useful, and not only in Eastern Europe. I mean, look at Brexit, uh, look at look at look at France, but look at Northern Ireland, where I was. I mean, we're very concerned these days about uh, what will happen with the hard Brexit uh, uh, within Northern Ireland. Uh, nobody can nobody can say there there may be a reemergence of uh, certain kinds of. Um, uh, divisions that we thought were, uh, uh, were were resolved in the 1990s. Uh, it's there's a very good recent article by Fintan O'Toole, the Irish uh, journalist, talking about the the emergence of English nationalism. How, in fact, Eng- British imperialism, uh, and in fact, even the ideology of the union within the United Kingdom, has always, in some ways, been a project of English nationalism. Uh, so if, if what about the United States of America, uh, do we, do we, do we, do we see, do we imagine a post-national future? No. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary how, uh, under, um, proper circumstances, these, these nationalist tropes come, come back. Uh, the only thing I, I, I could say is somebody who identifies with the center left is that the center left has to itself, uh, take cognizance of national, nationalist concerns, uh, the concerns of, uh, say, you know, p- people within Poland or Hungary, that their cultures and languages be maintained. And, 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 and these, if, if there are concerns of that kind, then, then people like Donald Tusk and others have to take them seriously. Um, there's, uh, there, there's, that, that's indeed a theme of the book is the way in which uh, uh, radical nationalism, fascism in earlier generations emerges always out of the mistakes of liberals. Right. So, uh, so I would, I guess, I, in answer to your question, I, I would say uh, I would, I would advise liberals not to imagine that there can be a fully post-national future, but to imagine a future in which uh, liberal, you know, and progressive politics uh, can absorb uh, concerns that people have about um, precisely the, you know, the, the the long-term narrative of the book concerns about loss of local tradition and culture, language. Uh, um, Ultimately, um, I think the, the concern is best expressed in a, by a Russian friend of mine who was sympathetic to Russian minor, minorities living in Latvia, that there was a concern uh, that uh, Russians as a minority had in Latvia, that they, um, given Latvian um, school policies, would no longer be able to pass on their own understandings of what was most important in the world, uh, things that they absorb through their own language and culture, right? things that give meaning to people's existence. Uh, it's it's at that, that level, I think, that uh, all politicians, especially on the left, are called upon to, you know, to, to, to show sensitivity and, and not simply to, you know, even your your question, post-national future, I, I think that if you even imagine that kind of politics, what you, what you do is you stimulate nationalism. So uh, uh, <laughs> I hate to say this, I'm reminded when I say these kinds of things, a bit, a bit of a, politician I don't admire, which is Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who 
he promoted uh, nationalist politics in the 1920s Soviet Union precisely because he was aware that this is a, a very strong source of political mobilization. If we wanted to deal with it, one, one had to accede to its demands. And this, this indeed was a time, the 1920s, which saw a flourishing of Belarusian, Ukrainian, Armenian, Georgian uh, culture. So that would be my somewhat, um, I don't know, somewhat provocative, perhaps, response to your question. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in such a thing at, the, at this moment. As, uh, in such a thing as a post-national future. Finally, where has from people's intimations led you? What are you currently working on? Well, um, I'm actually working on uh, what's something I view as being a, a great tragedy of the 20th century, a bit further to the west in in Austria. But Austria is one of the cases of the region. The division between uh, moderate uh, socialist and moderate Christian politics. Um, so the solution to the problem of fascism after World War II was for the center-right and center-left to come together in Western Europe. Obviously, this didn't happen in Eastern Europe. Uh, but what, you know, what, I, what I find frustrating in uh, working in the 1920s and 30s, especially in, say, uh, Austria, Italy, uh, Germany, France, to some extent, also, also Poland, is, is, is the way that... Uh, the center right and center left failed to cooperate. Um, I think also in our own day, if there's if there's a solution, uh, if there's a way to move forward, it is through some combination of center right and center left uh, politics. So, so my concrete project is actually about uh, the 1920s in Austria and the emergence of phenomena known as Austrofascism. Uh, so that's something I've I've been reading a lot about and hope to write a relatively brief uh, book. And after that. Um, something larger on democratization. Um, so the, the, this, the success of democratic politics after World War II in Western Europe was, was due precisely to the, to the way in which Christian Democrats and social Democrats collaborated with some liberals, right? And so I, I, I'm, I'm interested in simply retelling the story in which, in which that was possible. It has to do with moderation of Marxism uh, and a modernization of Catholicism at the same time. Um, James Chapel of... Duke University has written a very interesting book about uh, modern modernization of Catholic politics. Uh, Sherry Berman at Columbia has written interesting things about um, about the um, moderation of social democracy. Very important study, uh, not 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 as well known as it should be among historians. So I'd like to kind of take these 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 two sorts of um, um, uh, scholarly interests, center left and center right, and, and bring them together. I think that's what I'm interested in doing way to read it. Thank you, Dr. Connolly, for joining me and discussing your work for New Books in Eastern European Studies. It was a nice pleasure talking to you today. It was a great pleasure talking to you, Vlada. Best wishes.